When I came to law school, our class had an orientation and the dean or vice dean said, who knows exactly what they want to do? And I raised my hand and I think I was the only silly first year who had the exact idea. He said, what is it? I said, art law. He laughed and said, oh, that's going to change. Welcome to Warfare of Art and Law, the podcast that focuses on how justice does or doesn't play out when art and law overlap. Hi, everyone. It's Stephanie. Prior to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, I had the opportunity to speak with Irina Tarsis, founder of the Center for Art Law. As you just heard, Ms. Tarsis began law school knowing she would pursue the field of art law. And during our conversation, she tells how that decision came about, as well as what inspired her to found the Center for Art Law, its current work, and her hope for its future. She also shares about issues she believes will be a focus in art law going forward, and we discuss a few recently filed NFT cases and the infamous Nodler Gallery story. In closing, Ms. Tarsus then gives her vision for art law as a field that has the potential to bring ethics, morals, and law together in creative ways to bring about just and fair solutions. Irina Tarsis, welcome to Warfare of Art and Law. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you, Stephanie, for inviting me. It's a great honor. What is it about art law that initially attracted you and has kept you entrenched in this field? Art law is, in my mind, ubiquitous. And I'm still trying to figure out what it is that's keeping me so focused on this subject. I feel like the more I learn, the more there is to find out and the the line keeps extending and then the horizon keeps going further and further away. There are more subjects to cover, more contracts, more relationships. But art law um, combines, I suppose, two of my passions. I um, wish I were brave enough to be an artist, but I'm not. And I like rules. So I like operating within a certain set of expectations. I think I respect property rights quite actively. And um, I was drawn to the subject of art law when I started studying Soviet nationalizations of property. Uh, It seemed that something was off in that treatment of personal property and in that treatment of art and cultural property specifically. Um, So that's, I suppose, my entryway into art law. And I've been uh, fascinated by various players in the field, by collectors and dealers and artists. So I'm I'm very interested in relationships between the players of the art law realm. For this work you were doing with the Soviet aspect, was that involving art? Um, I started working on Soviet nationalizations in the context of law libraries, actually, when I was asked to catalog some of the uh, imperial library books, and I was fascinated to see, first of all, these beautiful illustrated books in the law library context. And secondly, I was really surprised to see certain book plates that materials came from uh, Tsarskoye Silo Library, for example. And I was wondering how come these books ended up in Cambridge, Massachusetts. So I started looking at the accession documents. I saw names of dealers repeating over and over again, and I was Um, curious how these books were able to move from one country to another by uh, means of these individuals. Why did they think these objects were worth 
investing into bringing across the ocean. Um, how did they get their hands on these objects in the first place? So I started by looking at books and manuscripts and then expanded into works of art and antiquities. And that was before you'd ever uh, considered going to law school? Exactly. I was actually never considering going to law school. Um, and I did a detour and I studied art history beforehand. And then this fascination with ownership of cultural property um, ultimately brought me to law school, knowing that I would be practicing art law. Did you also already have the vision to create the Center for Art Law or how did that come about? I think Center for Art Law was something that, well, it was missing. There was n not um, a place like that in the United States. I learned that there was an Institute um, of Art and Law in England, for example. And then uh, I learned of another center in Geneva. But in the United States, there wasn't a centralized place where you can study about this intersection of art and law. And since I love learning about new relationships and new cases in this area, I just thought it would be nice to share the learning with others. How it started, my understanding is it was initially a blog and has flourished from there. Would you kind of walk through how it it has grown? Um, I think Center has been growing organically. That's the term I've been using, which means very slowly, but surely. It did start as a blog uh, where I was able to share what I was learning and reading about with others. And then other writers were interested in contributing content. Um, it's always nice to meet with people face-to-face -face and hear conversations and discussions about theoretical and academic topics. It's also nice to see attorneys and artists in the same space discussing what they can do, how they can help each other, and how they can inspire each other's works. So from the blog that started while I was still in law school to um, kind of a blog on steroids to ultimately a nonprofit that was inevitable uh, that was incorporated in 2017. And that's um, the trajectory of the center. And we've been growing well, I suppose. Um, we have um, expanded our staff to have executive director. We've had uh, interns working with the center for nearly 10 years, starting with one intern here and there, then two interns, then more. And right now we have about five interns every semester who come from both legal backgrounds, so law students and pre-law students, or maybe not even law-bound um, students who are interested in either working in museums or working with artists or working in trust and estates matters, but focusing on uh, creators, creative people, um, artistic production. And I'm really proud to say that this year we have introduced a new position that is a Judith Bressler Fellowship with the idea that before Another decade passes by, we'll have um, a bigger institution with bigger staff taking care of more of these subjects on a more granular level. The fellowship, is it focused largely on the, the clinics that the center has running now? Yes, thank you for asking. So the fellowship is named after one of the pioneers and one of the most inspiring art lawyers um, who's ever lived, Judith Bressler. Um, she um, unfortunately passed away a couple of years ago. And uh, given that she has done so much for the development of this field, both in academic sense and in practical sense, um, it was um, 
an easy choice for us to name the fellowship after her. And the fellow is indeed responsible for running our visual artist um, clinics that have come um, about from kind of, we've been doing a lot of academic work, a lot of research and writing and bringing people together for webinars and conversations. Um, but we often have artists who come to us or um, heirs of artists with questions. And we would say, well, Center for Art does not provide legal assistance, but we can give you background information. And then at some point, the question was, well, how come we don't provide legal assistance? Maybe our students can learn better and make uh, better use of their time if they are in the room where an attorney and an artist are discussing some kind of um, ongoing problem. So we started with the immigration clinic. And right now we're preparing to actually launch our third clinic that will deal with artist-dealer contracts. And again, there are many other ideas for clinics in the works. So um, the fellowship is um, allowing us to build up this silo, I suppose, of the center's offerings with the idea that at some point it will have to be a full-time staff member or more dealing with different clinics, maybe hopefully taking cases in-house. One of the other clinics, the legacy and estate planning, how does that look and, and how are people brought in and, and what is the, the inner workings for that with the artists that you're dealing with? Um, the clinic that deals with estate planning for artists is um, one that we started last year. And it is, I mean, I'm not sure if gratifying is the right word, but it is um, really interesting to hear different stories from artists who have uh, had long, productive, fruitful lives um, who are trying to decide what to do with their um, works, with their collections, um, because many of the artists out there are not represented by galleries and they don't necessarily know how to uh, take care of their art. Well, it's hard to take care of something or anything after one is no longer on this earth. So the question is, should um, the art be taken care of um, passes or should this trove be left to the next generation? And um, what are the pitfalls? We use a lot the case involving Vivian Meyer, for example. She was an undiscovered photographer until long after she died and somebody purchased contents of her storage locker, was taken in by the various photographs and negatives that he found in that locker. And then we were, um, we members of the public uh, were lucky to see her works, but she never had recognition or uh, a gallerist or anybody take really keen interest in her works until after she, she, uh, she passed. So um, there are many artists still living who are hoping to organize their worldly business and make sure that at least some of their creation is uh, maintained and contextualized. Uh, so this clinic is trying to make sense of what artists have made, how um, valuation of art um, is not necessarily tied to the tides of the art market. And it's, it's, um, it's an interesting dilemma where you have many artists who are, in my mind, worthy of being protected or preserved or remembered, but uh, they haven't been discovered yet. And ideally they would be discovered before it's 
too late. So the clinic invites artists to talk about their works. It invites actually um, gallerists to think about how they can represent older or waiting to be discovered artists. Um, we only scratch the tip of the, uh, let's say, tip of the iceberg with this clinic. And there are many more articles and many more experiences that we're looking to offer. There was an article uh, recently in the art newspaper uh, was talking about ageism in the art world. And, and so what you're talking about sort of, to me, fits with that uh, that issue of trying to celebrate artists that are, you know, not necessarily uh, under 40, you know, like the 40 under 40 is what the article was pointing to that, that this fixation with youth and, and instead looking to celebrate all aspects of all ages of an artist. So it's uh, in step with a, an important mission, I think. Um, one of the efforts that we have done um as part of this particular clinic is to do artist feature series. And it's fascinating to hear from artists who have this longer perspective. They, they can look back and um, point out to what worked, what didn't work, where there were um, interesting decisions that they had to make or, or deal with. Um, I think we have a lot to learn from each other. And one of the reasons Center exists is because artists can learn from lawyers and definitely lawyers can learn from artists. So it's a, it's a, a sharing of learnings experience. And um, that's why I suppose I'm, I'm never bored of it. There's always something new to learn. And One of the features I, I think I'd seen was an artist. I think you'd represented was Molly DeGenis. DeGenis. Exactly. She is, Oh, you know, 90 some years young. She's very, very brave, very smart and outspoken. And I, I love talking to artists and listening to artists when they discuss their works. And she was one that uh, I thought it was interesting. I don't believe that she was part of the clinic, but she was already active in documenting her work and organizing it for, you know, for a future estate. Is that right? Yes. So uh, she has thought about what needs to be done with her works. And as I understand, she she wants to have in her will, I believe she wants to leave um, her assets to a charity uh, that takes care of animals. Um, so she has thought about this process and she has organized her thoughts and, and business accordingly. Is there any thought on, um, you said that there are other clinics coming up. It occurs to me, of course, resale royalty rights, I know, is something that you have focused on. And I wondered if there was any potential for a clinic that dealt with how artists might contract for their resale royalty rights. Well, Stephanie, you are very much on the target. The next clinic that we're doing is about artist-dealer relationships. Um, we are... Um, we were more focused or we were planning to be more fo focused there on the New York law that protects artists who consign works of art to dealers um, in creating a trust effectively. Um, but resale royalty, as you mentioned, is a, a concept that is still foreign in the United States and um, non-digital artists need to either Forget about it because it's not something that um, is statutorily available or try to contract for it. And the contracts um, 
are enforceable to a degree, as you know, they're enforceable against um, the first buyer, but maybe not necessarily against the subsequent collectors. Uh, we will bring this subject up when we, we work with artists and galleries about negotiations and discussions of these possible um, private um, terms with the, not advent, but with the proliferation and um, popularity of the non-fungible tokens, the discussion of resale royalty is rehashed again. And perhaps if digital artists are successful in making that a normal course of business where every transaction allows the original artist to collect a little bit of resale royalty, um, maybe the federal law will ultimately catch up and allow traditional artists to be able to partake in resale royalty schemes. I was curious your thoughts on one of the recent NFT cases that was filed in the Southern District that involved the Guernica of India. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that case, but it, it struck me that in that context, the, the argument about the artist who had decades ago contracted away his rights, allegedly, and now his estate is is fighting for those rights. Uh, I wondered if you'd seen instances that might give light onto how this case might be dealt with, because when he was contracting away his rights, the artist might not have been thinking about NFT reproductions. Well, many of the contracts that um, I see include uh, reference to all future media now known or to be to, to be invented down the line. In the case of this, the Guarnica of India, um, I, so this was filed in in the United States. I haven't read the complaint yet. Yeah, yeah, it was filed, I believe, in January in the Southern District of New York. I have to do some homework. Thank you. My horizon just expanded. <laughs> <laughs> Um, we know that, for example, Tarantino was mentioned um, mentioned that he was going to print or make mint NFTs, and he has been sued already to prevent that from um, proceeding. I anticipate a lot of NFT-related lawsuits in 2022, but I, I'm not sure I have to read up more about the um, contract involving this Guarnica of India. Yeah, and, and I think that the answer hasn't even been filed yet, so we'll just have to watch for that. The other question I was curious about was uh, your perspective on going forward, what the most critical issues in art law or cultural heritage protection, uh, how you see that? I think we are um, going to see more classes being offered, not only in law schools and not um, in a handful of law schools, but in all kinds of universities and settings, because students are very interested in questions of social justice and in questions of um, artistic expression. Um, we are seeing more efforts to return antiquities that were looted during colonial times, and we see a lot of efforts on this on the part of museums to be in step with the times. So probably review of the possession of art is going to be the next big thing where maybe museums have joint ownership of certain objects that have interesting or important cultural associations with multiple nations and peoples. 
I anticipate that maybe World War II questions will continue being asked, um, maybe less so in the court of law, but maybe more in the context of negotiations, again, in, in these alternative settings uh, between institutions and collectors. And as we just mentioned, probably digital realm is going to continue growing and gifting us with art law cases to study. Speaking of classes, you teach in several different venues. And so I was curious about the offerings that you have, say, at the Fashion Institute or Sotheby's, what your focus is with those classes, what it has been, and if there is going to be additional focus going forward. Um, I think teaching is my most favorite aspect of practicing or knowing. I have taught in different settings, both for undergraduate students, graduate students, and continued education settings. So Sotheby's, for example, is more of a continued education um, opportunity, while FIT is a mix of undergraduate and um, graduate students. Since I don't know where these students are going to go as they um, earn their degrees and enter the workforce, I'm trying to give them as many tools as possible so that they are situated on the map of the art field. Some of them might be dealers, collectors, or curators, or um, advisors, appraisers, it's hard to anticipate ultimately which trajectory they will take. They might be lawyers. Most of them won't be lawyers. So what I pursue as my general objective is to give them exposure to as many different um, aspects of law, so contracts law, trust and estates law, international law, copyright law, so that they know, they know what questions to ask. And so they're not, they don't feel like they're unarmed when faced with certain questions in their workforce. And I, I like focusing on museums for many of my cases and um, teaching moments because museums and auctions present this wonderful um, opportunity to look at different participants coming into one place and showing their interests and allegiances, um, which makes students think how would they behave in certain roles if they were curators, for example, or if they were representing um, collectors' interests or interests of board of directors. Uh, they have to visualize expectations of these fields and try to argue both sides, I suppose, of an argument to then um, be able to apply analysis and apply their common sense and know the law to, to be active participants and um, not get lost, I suppose. You also, I believe, did teaching through the European Shoah Legacy Institute. Is that right? Right. There was um, a very interesting program, again, intended for a mixed group of students. Some were museum administrators, some were undergrads, some were um, graduate students, who are looking into um, provenance research issues. And again, it's unclear where they're going and where they've been. Are they trying to sell artworks? And thus um, they have one set of objectives or are they trying to um, recreate provenance of objects for exhibition purposes? Or are they trying to um, assist original heirs to 
to recover, uncover whereabouts of looted property that belonged to their family. So under the European Shaw Legacy Institute, I worked with a team of um, museum experts, historians, attorneys, art historians, um, on telling the story, recreating the provenance of objects that for most part were looted during World War II. Do you still do any teaching on provenance research? I do provenance research all the time, probably um, part hobby, part habit. Um, when I go to auctions or museums, I, I look at the stories that are told and untold in the catalogs. Um, for the Center for Art Law, for example, we have to do a workshop on provenance research. We have another workshop on provenance research um, related to antiquities that is being offered this spring. And in my classrooms, I, I show students how to read catalogs, how to ask questions about missing commas. I teach my students how to read um, catalogs very thoroughly and how to cross-check information and to not stop until they have satisfied their, their own needs and curiosity about trajectory of objects, where they came from, from starting point, from the point of creation to the point of current possession. Um, and for the Center for Art Law, we have been offering workshops to students interested in provenance, re provenance research dealing with Nazi-eluded art. And we will have another workshop this spring on how to do provenance research for antiquities. So these skills are very useful in different settings. And um, those who have learned to do it can benefit in review. And those who are learning, um, I, I think it's a, it's a wonderful research skill to have. And um, museums are increasingly uh, recognizing that provenance research is important. It's just probably we still can use a little bit more funding to bring these researchers into institutions. I think Louvre just announced that they will be working with Sotheby's on in-depth provenance research for their collections. And my question is, why Sotheby's? Um, because there's so many other provenance researchers, independent and looking for jobs that who, who would be delighted to pour their heart and soul and all their skills into um, quality research for that museum and many other museums. But, um, and I suppose better now than never or later. Is there an example of a, a artwork or an object that you found most interesting that when you were doing provenance research? I like different subjects for different reasons, but one of the works that I really enjoy um, illuminating, and maybe because we're living in pandemic, is the portrait of Wally. Um, it's a painting that has a lot of art law history. It's a work that was done by an artist who himself died um, because of a pandemic. And the object, the way it has moved from his studio to collectors, to institutions, um, has a very interesting and rich history in the fact that the work was subject of a lawsuit for more than a decade and ultimately went back to Austria, um, is one of the most exciting, I suppose, examples that I use in my teaching. But there are other objects that I look at for different purposes. The future of the center, you kind of touched on it, but is there an overall uh, idea about 
its mission. And and I wonder specifically about, uh, to me, a lot of the work that you're doing does speak towards social justice. And so I, I wonder, um, going forward with that bigger mission in mind, what your thoughts were on, on where you see the center going. I'm not sure this is the answer that you're looking for, or if I'm answering your question, but what I would love to see, I would love to see a standalone building with excellent air conditioning and great internet, multiple floors, clearly, with a standalone library dedicated to art flow resources, with uh, rooms where students can both be lectured to and where students can actually gather around a table and dissect a painting and look at the frame and look at the paints and um, maybe work with Jamie Martin on trying to analyze paints to see if something is a forgery or not. Um, It would be fantastic if we could have artists who teach lawyers um, some of their crafts and would be great to have more attorneys working with artists on their wills or their contracts um, or on projects that incorporate legal documents and creative um, creative productions. So Center for Art Law in 100 years, if it still exists, is going to be an awesome physical space with satellites around the world. Um, and it will be a place of employment of many, many individuals, which is um, a difficult, but I think worthwhile pursuit. There are many aspects of art law that um, one person cannot embrace. So we just need more people focusing on antiquities and focusing on digital, focusing on um, objects that moved in the 19th century, objects that moved in the 20th century, et cetera. So, and we haven't talked about forgeries at all. You know, There will definitely be a cinema inside of this building because there's so many movies dealing with art law subjects. Um, grand plans with a lot of people involved who all share this passion of justice and preservation of cultural artifacts. And for the forgeries aspect, is there a particular story that struck you as as most compelling? I think I have to say that the Nodler story has stuck with me for a number of reasons. Um, I'm fascinated by Nodler's history in general, the fact that this gallery has, has survived for so many decades and has been sued for many reasons and was plaintiff in many cases itself. Uh, we just had a lecture where we um, discussed F for fake and had a presentation by Aaron Crowell about his role in representing plaintiffs in one of the Nudler cases. Um, there's a lot to learn. It's it's wonderful that uh, De Sole versus Nudler case was actually heard in court. So we could see um, certain experts come and take the stand and explain how they do their uh, due diligence, how they um, practice their professions. Um, it's a it's a great story. Although I'm I'm a little bit sad that the gallery closed. I'm still surprised that the gallery that was situated in the same block as the Frick Library, where you can do a lot of provenance research, uh, went down for selling forgeries. So you would have preferred to see it continue in some way, perhaps under different leadership? I'm not sure, but I, what I was thinking about when the gallery closed, 
was that the art world or art law world needs an award, um, like the Oscars or the Globe Awards. And we would call our award the Nudler. Every year, two people would receive the Nudler Award. One, an artist who made a great impact on the legal field. And I thought Jeff Koons would be that artist because he has really been in a lot of books, on, on a lot of law books. And I thought that it would be appropriate to have a lawyer receive an award who has done a lot for the arts. So it would be a, a two-person uh, celebration, one for the artist and one for the lawyer. And I thought that maybe they can receive the Nudler, let's say of 2020, 2021, and so on. But I was told that nobody would be pleased to receive a Nudler. So um, that name is probably still trademarked, but um, is, is not going to be resuscitated anytime soon. I think it's a great lesson to be learned and relearned in the very least. Yeah, it's a very interesting idea. I am curious how it would be taken, considering the notorious way that Nodler went down. Right. So is there anything that I haven't asked you about that you think is important about the center that you want to share or about your practice? Well, the question... Again, my question would be, how can we as a community of many artists and many art fans and art aficionados and collectors and attorneys, how can we make this into an institution that's um, useful to more participants? And how can we make it into this standalone, beautiful building that um equally belongs to all the participants. It's, I don't really want the center. I don't think the center should be affiliated with any one law firm, for example, or any one law school or university in particular, because then there could be um, an idea that it's exclusive to the um, lawyers, attorneys in the firm or students in that institution. I think it makes sense as a standalone place where people with questions and passion for art and law can come and contribute, volunteer, or ask for assistance and direction. So the question is, how do we work together to reach that um, goal or vision? Um, because fundraising for it is not a, you know, there's very little fun in the fundraising in general. Which uh, brings to mind the auction. Are you and the center going to have uh, continued plans for annual auctions for fundraising? So as part of our fundraising efforts, we have hosted two auctions, one in 2019 and the other one that was online in 2021. It's a lot of work. We were pleased to show works by different artists, some, some very young and emerging artists and some much older artists. Um, it's Right now, it's more work than um, financial benefit. I think the students who were involved with the auctions and artists who donated their pieces to the auction um, were well served. There's a lot to learn. It's a, it's a very exciting proposition of studying works and organizing them and putting them on display. In 2019, we actually held a preview at um, Taylor Graham Gallery where a lot of friends and artists came and looked at the works. Our students were curators for a day. So from the educational point, the auction was great. Um, from fundraising 
efforts? Um, I'm not sure. It's it's right now um, quite a lot of work, and maybe we'll have to have this work outsourced to somebody with more experience in the auction realm. For uh, students or potential students uh, of art law or artists, do you have any recommendations uh, for based on your experience and and your career, uh, any recommendations on going forward, how you would encourage them to develop their interest? Sure. So one of my fears is that I overpromise and I say everybody can practice art law and then that's not the case. So that's one of the fears that I have or concerns. And I definitely don't want to um, lead people astray. I do think it's possible to do a lot with the legal degree, um, although it's an expensive and uh, time-consuming proposition. I also think that there are many ways law and art overlap and connect. So some of the students interested in this sphere can go and become tax attorneys. And there's a lot of um, nuanced work to be done in that space or become attorneys who specialize in nonprofit governance and work with institutions that are um, that have missions to preserve buildings, historical buildings or collections. I believe the field is potentially bigger than it is. Um, and I'm hoping that the center can grow the pie. And so the bigger the pie, the more positions there can be for students to fill one of the objectives of the center was to prevent people from falling into art law. I met too many people who fell into it. And I think there could be a way of systematically approaching becoming an art lawyer, but there are different trajectories and whether people go towards the museum route or towards uh, representing individual artists. um, I think the, the careers are interesting, if not always direct or lucrative. So there are many attorneys out there who can, for example, volunteer and help artists with their contracts or help artists with their um, representations and various disputes. So for students who are interested in this field, they should try and ask themselves again after maybe interning with us or writing an article if they want to dedicate more time to a particular endeavor or if they want to um, switch. One of the art, one of the students I worked with um, was able to intern with the museum. She had a great experience. And afterwards she said, you know, my curiosity is satisfied. I don't need to be an art lawyer. And I thought that was outstanding. She was not told it's not possible. She tried. She saw how the institution functioned on the inside and she thought that was sufficient. So we want to give people an opportunity to sample art law and um, hopefully they're Careers are fulfilling regardless of whether they continue in this vein or switch and find another trajectory. And do you have any closing thoughts on your hopes for the field of art law in, in any of the aspects that we've been discussing that you see a need for improvement in achieving just results and, and your thoughts on how that might occur? There's always more to learn. And so what I would love to see is um, colleagues sharing information and learning with each other and finding time and space to enter the next generation and the next generation of 
um, colleagues, as well as being open-minded and generous in answering questions from people who are novices and maybe not trained to law. The most gratifying work is being asked questions that you have never considered before. I was asked actually this year about destruction of family family heirlooms, if there is any kind of cause of action. Is there any kind of remedy for damage to, to somebody's insignificant property if it was of sentimental value? And law is not very sentimental, but art law has an opportunity of bringing ethics and morals and law together. And we can look for creative as well as fair and just solutions. Uh, of course, I don't recommend stealing a painting from a museum just because it was stolen in the first place, but finding um, an elegant solution where a museum gets to display it for X number of years and the family gets to see it and enjoy it for next number of years is a wonderful outcome of something that starts as a contentious, potentially legal problem and could potentially evolve into um, a partnership between institutions or individuals who have done nothing wrong, but are finding themselves on opposite sides of the table. Um, So my hope for the center, it will continue attracting wonderful, eager, talented students with dreams of helping artists and doing remedying historical wrongs and injustices. And it's always wonderful to hear from artists and colleagues about their experiences and trajectories. So there's really no end to how how much we can share with each other and assist each other. So my hope that it's this experiment, this nonprofit is going to continue. I share that hope. I I look forward to where it goes. And thank you so much for your time. It's been such a, a joy talking with you. Thank you, Stephanie. And I'm I'm very humbled to be able to be on your podcast, given that you have done so much for us in the past. One of your works was included, well, actually, two of your works were included in our auctions. And it was lovely to host you at the center talking about confessions of artists and lawyers. Um, So I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing you in the same physical space. Uh, and, and working with you and learning from you for decades to come. To support the Center for Art Law's mission and to learn more about its offerings, please visit the link in the show notes to the Center for Art Law's website. If you'd like to share your comments about this or any of the other podcast episodes, you can email me at stephanie at warfareofartandlaw.com. If you'd also like to share which of the podcast episodes is your favorite, please take a screenshot of the episode to share on social media and tag Warfare of Art and Law podcast. Until next time, this is Stephanie Drotty bringing you Warfare of Art and Law. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. What are your plans for the second Saturday of this month? Perhaps consider joining in for a discussion about art, culture, and social issues. Hi everyone, it's Stephanie, and every second Saturday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, I host the Second Saturday Art and Justice Gathering, an online call that explores a range of topics from artists who might inspire 
to legal decisions that might infuriate, all with the aim of sparking dialogue about social justice and promoting creative thinking. If interested, please email me at stephanie at warfareofartandlaw.com.